0: Voting is about power. If you're going to make a difference in this country, you protest in the street, but you also protest with your votes. And then when you get the power, you protest with policy. You write policy that changes the prevailing realities of injustice and turns them towards justice. And so politics is about building power and changing the narrative.
1: In a few days, we're having an election that you've probably heard about. But does your vote even matter? So many of the things we've covered in this show have been like money in politics is nearly omnipotent, voter suppression is an unstoppable force, the conservative judicial movement owns the nation's courts. It can really start to feel like we, as individuals, don't really have a say in this. And if you're old enough to drink, you've lived through two elections where the popular vote didn't pick the president. That's because of the Electoral
2: College. The Electoral College just always seemed to me as just this one more thing that we had to learn about in history class, and it's old and it didn't mean anything. And I certainly do not feel like that's the case now.
1: The Electoral College. It's one of the things that separates you and democracy. This baroque-as-fuck institution which sort of makes the popular vote meaningless. How can we have a truly representative democracy in an America where this system persists? Where did it come from, and why do we still have the Electoral College today? This week, on the final episode of this season, who is the Electoral College? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we examine power by looking at the people. Who have it, and right? Yes, of course. The Electoral College is not a person; it's a lot of people. We know. What is the Electoral College? It's one of those things that's embarrassing to ask about, like how to drive a moped or like trying to remember when your mom's birthday is.
3: What is the Electoral College? uh, Question I think is is uh, is a great one because it's it's in attempting to answer it, one inescapably reveals.
1: Um, how baroque it is. That's Alex Kesar, a Harvard guy who writes about historical and contemporary problems in government, voting, and of course, the Electoral College. I'd say the place to begin with
3: this is with the allocation of power and influence to the states. The basic structure is that the president will be chosen by electoral votes, not by a popular vote these electoral votes are allocated to each state based on the number of members they have in the house of representatives and the number of senators that they have which of course is always 2 so it's some it's largely proportional to Population, but not entirely. So that's the first step the
1: allocation of
3: the number of electoral votes.
1: Yeah, it's baroque as fuck. When you vote for a candidate for president, you're actually voting for an elector who promises to vote for that candidate. Each state is allocated electors based on its population. And then the states decide how they want to meet out those electors, who are typically appointed by party leaders. So it's often literally party leaders' kids and grandchildren, large adult sons, and Lena Dunham types. So each party has their crew of electors, and if their candidate wins the majority of the state, they send all of those electors to vote in the electoral college. Winner take all. It was built by the framers of the Constitution, who likely had no idea what life would be like 200-some years in the future. They probably imagined a utopia where tea was tax-free, but you could still enslave human beings. Something between 900 and 1,000 constitutional amendments to get
3: rid of it or significantly reform it have been introduced since 1800. The public opinion polls indicated that a majority of Americans since the 1940s, and that's when we really have reliable polls beginning, a majority of Americans have preferred substituting a national popular vote for the Electoral College. So you have you have this institution which doesn't work very well, which misfires, which in many respects doesn't conform to some basic bedrock values, like one person, one vote, and is wildly unpopular. And so why do we still have
1: it? How how and why has this been preserved? It's about power. And here's one thing you really need to know. I'm quoting Kesar himself from his new book that is literally titled, Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? Quote, the design of the Electoral College was such that states did not lose any influence in presidential elections by imposing restrictions on the right to vote, end quote. Because it's winner-take-all, it doesn't matter how many people vote or are able to vote in any given state. It's not based on the number of people who show up to vote.
3: And what that means is that if, if you have a state with a 60% turnout, uh, you get a certain number of electoral votes, and, and you get the same number of electoral votes uh if you have 10 percent turnout in contrast if you can imagine if you had a national popular vote then it would be the number of people who showed up uh to vote who would be representing the influence of a state or of a region i mean that, that's the basic construct but turning to voter suppression what this has meant is that states are not penalized for having restrictive laws or practices that keep some people from the polls.
1: There have been five elections in which a candidate lost the popular vote, but won because of the Electoral College. 1824, 1876, 1888, 2000, and 2016. Basically, nobody could vote in like 1824, but in 2000 and 2016, elections which you probably lived through, a little more than half of eligible voters actually voted. We'll come back to that. Today, the Electoral College means that some votes matter more than other votes. It's probably pretty clear who that benefits today and who it benefited in the past. Slavery is the, is,
3: is the most telling and vivid example of this. When, according to the original Constitution, states were given representation in Congress and thus electoral votes were for all of their adult white people and three-fifths of all others, which basically meant slaves. So that if a state had X hundred thousand slaves, it got credit for three-fifths of them towards representation in Congress and electoral votes. That's, that's to say that they, they got a significant added bonus of electoral votes on behalf of African-Americans who did not vote. So that meant that what the white Southerners were casting votes that were more heavily weighted than the votes of people in other parts of the country. Which sounds a lot like, uh,
1: I don't know, how things work in 2020.
3: That was the system under slavery, and that's why uh, the South was utterly resistant to any consideration of a national popular vote as long as slavery endured. That system doesn't disappear with the Civil War. Um, Civil War happens, slavery is brought to an end, uh, the 15th Amendment is passed enfranchising African-Americans or saying that they, their right to vote cannot be denied or abridged, at least for a while. And what happens at that point, this is, you know, the late 1860s, 1870s, is that Southern states then get representation in Congress and thus electoral votes for 100% of all African Americans, as well as 100% of white Southerners. And that's perfectly reasonable, except that within about 10 to 20 years in each state, African Americans are disfranchised again. And at that point, the white South is benefiting from what I've called a five-fifths clause. They get full representation, but African Americans are still not allowed to vote. And what this also does in terms of the history of the Electoral College is it makes the entire South a region uh, that has no interest in electoral college reform because it benefits from it, it gives the South added strength uh, in in national elections, um, and they
1: fear that they would lose a great deal by having a national popular vote. We talk a lot about slavery these days, but it really is impossible to underestimate how foundational the institution was and still is today. The Constitution was assembled in part to accommodate the interests of powerful slave owners, who, unsurprisingly, wanted slavery to continue. The place in the Constitution
3: where they tried to preserve slavery and in the, in the interests of slave owners was it was with the Three-Fifths Clause, you know, which gave Southern states representation for three-fifths of their slaves. I don't think that the Electoral College was seen so explicitly as a structure that would defend slavery. I think that what really happens is that they come up with the idea of the Electoral College at the end of the summer. It's actually a committee that's appointed uh, after everybody else has gone off on vacation. They're having a lot of trouble. They don't decide this until the end of the summer. And what the Electoral College does is not create any new compromises between slave owners, or between slave states and free states, it imports into the selection of a president the compromises that had already been made in July with respect to representation in Congress. Um, those were the compromises that included the, the "quotes three-fifths compromise. But the two, co- the two critical compromises made earlier in the summer were to have a bicameral legislature so that one branch of Congress would be proportional to population, and in one each set each state would have an equal say and the other compromises between free states and slave states and that that compromise was the three-fifths clause in effect those compromises are imported into the presidential
1: election system at the end of the summer Almost 250 years later, we're still living with the effects of contentious negotiations between people who enslaved human beings and people who didn't enslave human beings, but were still, for the most part, cool with it. So historically, the Electoral College was a system that preserved the power of the South. Today, it's pitched as a system that makes small states matter. But is that even true? There is a mythology that says that if we had a national popular vote,
3: the small states would get no attention. All of the attention would be given to large states with many electoral votes. The fact is that small states are not given
1: any attention now. When America began, it was a loose federation of states that could have easily split into small antagonistic nations. A European-style mess. That's probably pretty unlikely to happen today. Like North Dakota going independent? It's not even the whole Dakota. What the Electoral College does is result in only a small set of swing states determining who is elected president. And this year, NPR found in October that a mind-boggling $1 billion in TV advertising alone has been spent by Biden and Trump in just 13 states. In fact, the money is concentrated in just six states. $882 million is being invested in Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, North Carolina, Wisconsin, and Arizona. Imagine how much affordable housing that could build.
3: It creates this ridiculous dynamic where no one is paying attention to to California and New York, except, except possibly to raise money in those states, right? That California is seen, I think, as a cash cow for candidates, but no one is addressing the issues that are particular to those regions. People are focused on, you know, this year it's Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and in other years it could be North Carolina or Florida and it distorts policy and ignores the interests of most of the country.
1: In 2018, California was the world's fifth largest economy, bigger than the entire United Kingdom. But you don't see Biden and Trump fighting over votes in California, do you? There's a quote that I like very much, uh,
3: saying that now experience as well as reason convinces us that the Electoral College uh, has to be abolished. And that was the emphatic statement of a senator in the 1870s.
1: The 1870s were 150
3: years ago. The Electoral College does more harm than good. It was not designed for anything approaching the modern world. You know, And I think that we should find some ways to replace it with... So, something more suitable and something that conforms better with our values. We are no longer a loosely strung set of new states and colonies. We're an, we are an integrated country. And I think that have, that as an integrated country, we need to have an integrated national government, which we, which we largely do have. But if that's the case, then the power wielded by different parts of this large and diverse country should be proportional to uh, the population of any part or region.
1: If we want a truly representative democracy, we need to get rid of this thing, right? But it turns out constitutional change isn't easy. I'm gonna bring in Sanford Levinson, a professor at the University of Texas Law School. How does significant constitutional change take place You look
4: at the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which was clearly the most important single addition to the Constitution's text since 1787, or certainly since 1791, with the Bill of Rights. What brought the so-called Reconstruction Amendments about was the fact that 750,000 people died in a civil war. So from my perspective, the question facing us today very broadly is whether the United States can successfully engage in needed constitutional reforms without a catastrophe. And I think the record is not very clear as to whether or not we can do that.
1: Okay, so civil war is probably not the best way to do this. But why is it so difficult to update the Constitution? We sent a guy to the moon, after all. Or so they say. The Constitution is in significant ways impervious
4: to change, thanks to Article 5, which is the article dealing with constitutional amendment. So there are many political scientists (laughs) who described the United States Constitution as the most difficult to amend constitution in the world. So we really function under a set of institutions created in 1787. That includes, incidentally, the Electoral College. But in addition to the fact that the Constitution is remarkably difficult to amend, There is also the fact, and my own inclination is to say, this helps to define so-called American exceptionalism, that Americans tend to venerate the US Constitution. We tend to believe it's the equivalent of a sacred text. We view the framers or the founders not simply as smart and skilled and flawed human beings, but almost as demigods. And so we have what, from my perspective, is a ridiculous reverence for the Constitution that it does not deserve, but it leads us simply not to ask extraordinarily important questions about whether the 1787 Constitution is still serving us well today. The central question should not be whether the decisions they made in 1787 made sense in 1787. Rather, the central question is whether it makes sense for us in 2020 to continue almost literally thoughtlessly to accept the validity of
1: those decisions to control our own lives today the way power is allocated in american democracy hasn't changed but america has changed we're going to talk about what that looks like after this the united states has been getting more and more diverse for about 50 years primarily because of immigration that means the american electorate is changing Mark Hugo Lopez is the director of the Global Migration and Demography Research Program at the Pew Research Center, a nonpartisan organization that measures almost everything you can measure, from public opinion to demographics.
5: So the nation's population has been growing more diverse since the 1960s, uh, with the Immigration and Nationality Act that was passed then, That brought to the United States about 59 million immigrants from many parts of the world. And that has had echoes in affecting the nation's diversity since. So, for example, just since 2010 alone, about half of the nation's population growth has come from Hispanic population growth alone. And another quarter has come from Asian American population growth.
1: This shift is happening across the country, but it's not the same everywhere.
5: So when we're talking about diversity, uh, and particularly at the county level, or even at the metropolitan or city level, the, the diversity story is different in different places, though California, New York, Florida, and Texas are, are more likely, and I'd add New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada. Colorado to that list as well. Uh, Our states that are, uh, and Georgia, are states that are um, perhaps going to cross a few thresholds on being what we might call majority non-white earlier than other places. But in rural America, some of the fastest growing parts of the country are places that are rural areas whose population growth is being driven by immigrants who are moving to those locations in places like Nebraska or in Iowa. North Carolina's story over the last uh, 30 years has been one of the growing Hispanic population in many rural areas because there are opportunities, job opportunities, in those rural areas. And so you see immigrants moving to them. So the story is not as simple as Uh, Big population states like California are driving this story. It's a much more mixed and nuanced uh, story across the country.
1: Fortunately, people still want to come to America. And that's a good thing, because if we didn't have immigration, the United States would fall into the negative population growth trap. That's a huge problem in places like Japan and Italy. This growth also means that the American electorate is changing.
5: So the growth in the nation's population since the 1960s has largely been driven by Hispanic, Asian American, and Black American population growth. Um, in fact, since 2010, the white non-Hispanic population in the U.S. hasn't grown um, at all. It's actually just stabilized. Um, what's, what we're seeing in terms of voters is that those patterns of population growth are echoed in the patterns of voter changes. And the US electorate has become more diverse as its population has become more diverse. And that's where we're now seeing growth in the number of voters is coming from uh, Hispanics, Asians and black Americans. And that really reflects the population growth of the last 40 plus years, which has come from those same groups.
1: So is our system of representative democracy keeping up with our changing population?
5: The growing diversity of the country is likely to be reflected in the future in a more diverse congress. We're already seeing that. The congress today is more diverse than it's ever been. Latinos, Asian Americans, Black Americans are all a part of that story. But there does continue to be at all levels of government Generally, an underrepresentation of many groups and an overrepresentation of non Hispanic whites. But it is important to note that, at least since 2000, the number of Hispanics elected to political office, for example, has more than doubled. And that's according to the National Association of Latino Elected Officials. And I think that's important to keep in mind, even if Latinos make up only about 5% of all elected and appointed officials across the country, that number and that share has been on the rise.
1: Representation that increasingly reflects the composition of the electorate seems good, but how does a changing America view an institution like the Electoral College?
5: The U.S. public, generally speaking, is in support of amending the Constitution uh, so that the candidate who has the most votes wins. Uh, About 55% of the U.S. public says that we should amend the Constitution so that the candidate who wins the most votes actually wins the election as opposed to using the Electoral College to determine who the winner is. largely democrats are more likely to support this than are republicans and that's perhaps a reflection of where you see uh democrats live they live in big states like california and new york who um if you take a look at their electoral college uh, vote, may not necessarily have the same weight in the electoral college that they do in terms of U.S. population, whereas Republicans are less supportive of this, uh, uh, and they tend to live in smaller states like South Dakota, for example, uh, where the electoral college weight of a a population of fewer than a million people actually is perhaps person-by-person greater than it is, say, for a state of California. So there does seem to be some political and partisan leanings in terms of who supports changing the Constitution or emitting the Constitution. Constitution, I should say, to allow for this change. Um, It's also notable that uh, that this is something that's across the board, that many Americans, across different groups of Americans, we do see a similar level of support for uh, amending the Constitution.
1: There is an effort underway to make the Electoral College obsolete. The National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, a plan where so far 15 states in DC have agreed to give their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote. But not enough states are signed on yet, and the interstate compact doesn't go into effect until states with a total of 270 electoral votes sign on. And there could be complicated legal challenges and so forth. Like Levinson said earlier, fixing this thing isn't easy. I want to go to Ohio, one of the 13 states where the Biden and Trump campaigns are spreading that billion-dollar TV spend.
2: My name is Amelia Sykes. I'm the state representative for Ohio's 34th House District, which is based in Akron. I've been honored to serve my community for six years now. And for the last two years, I have served as the Ohio House Minority Leader and I lead the Democratic Caucus, uh, 37 members in both policy and politics.
1: Minority Leader Sykes has been fighting for equitable representation in a changing Ohio for years.
2: Well, in 2010, we saw the Red Map campaign and uh, the Republicans, you know, lost the presidency and they wanted to get their power back. And they put together a strategy that would target state legislatures across the country. And Ohio was one of them. We had taken the majority, Democrats had taken majority in 2008 along with President Obama's election. And with that uh, planning and strategy, they were able to flip legislatures across the country. This allowed them to redraw congressional and state legislative maps into gerrymandered pieces of uh, protected, fiefdoms for uh, Republican members, it didn't matter how unresponsive or how unaccountable these members were or continue to be, they would continue to be reelected, and no matter what happened, there would be an R um, in that seat.
1: Ultimately, these systems aren't so different. They're designed to maintain the power of those who have it. And the Electoral College achieves the same result as Redrawn Maps
2: its origins were to make sure that the white male property owners were the de facto decision makers of who would be president. And while it may not be as blatantly obvious, it is exactly what is happening today. There is a certain group of interests of Uh, a smaller and smaller population of people as uh, communities of color people of color are starting to take the majority in terms of population yet can still maintain uh, power in all of these institutions government and in the private sector because there are these institutions like the electoral college that allow for the power to remain uh, within the hands of the minority uh, even Against the will of the majority.
1: Minority leader Sykes is thinking about how a changing America is represented. Or not represented. And that's both a national issue and a local issue. It's not like the president is typically going to communities and addressing the problems that those communities face.
2: We see it at the state level with uh, many more of our legislators coming from small rural towns than the urban areas, and they have an unequal amount of power, and they are the minority of the state, but yet the influence and the power is just so much stronger. And I'm not advocating that these folks don't have representation or that they don't have good representation or that if they are the better candidate, that they should not win. But what's happening is, a systemic area from the electoral college, gerrymandering to voter suppression are doing all of these things to keep the representation from being adequate and fair. And these systems are working perfectly to make sure certain people don't have access to the most powerful rooms um, and to make the decisions that impact the most amount of people, because God forbid uh, that some of those folks start Uh, sharing information and sharing wealth uh, and sharing opportunity to everyone and treating people as though they are truly equal.
1: Really what we're talking about is representation. And the Electoral College is a potent symbol of the structural failures of American democracy, which have come into focus for many people since Donald Trump's Electoral College win in 2016.
2: I know people were really, really discouraged after the 2016 election. but again, if, if there's any glimmer of hope is, uh, we are the majority. We are the majority. The electoral college in that system is not. And so once we decide, and it's all on us, once we decide that we're not gonna take it anymore, we're not gonna take it anymore. And they can't, there's only so much outmaneuvering that they're gonna be able to do. Uh, and so I think people can find a little bit of faith in that. And I hope that they do. Uh, because it's there and and we're so close to it we're just so close we just have to keep going keep pushing don't let them wear us out uh, because our futures are on the line here
1: we'll be back after this the electoral college is a relic but a relic that exerts a profound influence on whose votes count and whose votes kind of don't Out of millions of votes, an Electoral College win can come down to a few thousand in a handful of states, which results in a de facto kind of minority rule. In 2016, Donald Trump lost the popular vote, but made it to the White House because of the Electoral College. Even though Hillary Clinton got 3 million more votes than Trump, she lost anyway, and it seems like this could keep happening. But what if we're just not thinking about this the right way? In 2016, only 60% of eligible voters actually voted.
0: We know 100 million people did not vote. He won by 80,000 votes. We have to stop, stop this business of overestimating our adversary.
1: That is Reverend Dr. William Barber II, pastor of Greenleaf Christian Church in Goldsboro, North Carolina, and a major national civil rights leader talking about how many Americans were eligible to vote but didn't in 2016. According to the Washington Post, that's 100 million eligible voters. Donald Trump won because of 79,646 voters in three states.
0: You have to stop overestimating the power of extremists and get in there and organize. Because if you give a person 193 electoral college vote head start in a race to 270, and basically all they need is 77 votes from the other states around the the country. We just cannot do that, and we don't have to do it. The demographics are there. The issues are there. If we we pull people together around addressing systemic racism, systemic poverty, uh, we can actually build these broad-based voting coalitions. You can win in Virginia. You can win in the South. You can win in South Carolina. You can win in Florida, but you have to be willing to organize there and, and, and push out an agenda that speaks to all people. And you cannot leave out of that agenda uh, uh, speaking to and saying something about lifting those who are too often stuck at the bottom, lifting those people who work every day of their lives but still make less than a living wage. And so um, if, if we're serious about this democracy, we've got to break the back of the solid South. And it's right here. It's within our grasp. We can do it. Uh, The numbers have been there for a long time.
1: The only reason we're even talking about the Electoral College is because as much as 40% of eligible voters don't vote.
0: The greatest illusion is to have all that power and then to believe that extremists actually have the power when they really don't. They really don't. This country has never seen what it would look like if 80% of us voted. you have not seen that. We can't really say we know anything. Because we've never seen that in modern times. But it's time that we see it. It's time, past time that we see it. It's past time that we exercise our right to vote at that power. Let's do that and then let's talk afterwards. But let's not say because of the illusions of power that there's no hope and there's nothing we can do.
1: They want you to think you're powerless. You're not. Now, why should you vote? Look at where we are now.
0: Everything we're facing is caused by somebody who was elected that didn't do their job. Somebody who was elected that didn't do their job. This is not some ghost that did this. It's an elected official. And just like they can be elected, they can be unelected. And in your state, the Senate, there's no for college. That's a straight up vote. They only win if we stay home. They only win if we disengage. They only win if we don't exercise our power. We have too much power to leave any of it on the table. People who sit in office and got free health care because they're a governor, they're a senator, they're a congressperson, they're a president, but then they turn around and deny the people that elect them health care. There's something blasphemous about that. I'm speaking from a spiritual perspective now. There's something wrong about that. They need time out. They need to go home. And you can send them home. But you can't send them home if you believe their hype, if you believe their illusion. And the only reason people do illusion is because they're not real. The only reason somebody works magic because it's not real. The only reason someone lies because the truth is too powerful. And the only reason somebody will be fighting to suppress your book because they know just how great it is, if you know it, and if we know it, and if we'll use it. And so don't tell me that we're tired. Don't tell me. It doesn't matter. Too many people died and bled for us to have this right. It would be wrong for us not to use it. Why don't we choose to vote? Choose to fight for this democracy. Choose to vote, and then after we vote, choose to push the people we voted for. But the last thing we need to be doing is choosing to disengage and to sit home.
1: It's about power. I want to go back to where we started
0: at the top of the episode. Voting is about power. If you're going to make a difference in this country, you have to not only protest in the street, but you also protest with your votes. And then when you get the power, you protest with policy. You write policy that changes the prevailing realities of injustice and turns them towards justice. And so politics is about building power and changing the narrative. We have overestimated the power. Of extremists, and we've underestimated our own power, and we we must break free from that illusion.
1: What's the illusion? That things like the electoral college are more powerful than the power we can all exercise when we vote. Here's Representative Sykes.
2: One thing that I find uh, so disheartening for me is so many people don't want to participate, and they say it doesn't matter, my voice doesn't count. But we are the majority. We are the majority. The people who feel the most counted out and downtrodden are the majority. And once we recognize that, and once we figure out how to exercise that and feel that confidence that yes, we can do it, and yes, we've got this done, um, we are going to get the government that we deserve. And that just takes some time because it's been hundreds of years of suppressing people's hope and joy and optimism so folks can consolidate and maintain power. And so we've gotta just reverse that. Uh, And we all just need to keep a little bit of glimmer of hope because that's all we need. This is a mustard seed of faith. Uh, So I am optimistic about that and I see the awakening and I see people starting to feel it. And I know um, the colleagues of mine who who are always trying to make sure they keep us down, they feel it too. And they're trying to hold on to a little bit they got, but in the end, they will not win. I truly uh, do not believe that they will win. They cannot win. And so I'm, I'm,
0: I'm grateful for that day, and I just hope I get to see it in my lifetime. Flip the script. In other words, rather than th- understand something that they said in South Africa when apartheid when was coming to an end, only a dying mule kicks the hardest. Why is, why do neo fascists and extremists lie so much? Because they don't want you to know the truth. America is overdue a third reconstruction. A fundamental uh, a shifting of public policy toward a more perfect union, toward a more genuine democracy, finishing the work that we that wasn't finished in the first and second Reconstruction. And I believe that possibility is right before us right now, uh, and that part of the reason we saw the rise uh, uh, and the and the stealing of an election through the electoral college of someone like Trump, and part of the reason we see. Uh, are the Republican senators doing what they're doing to try to stack the Supreme Court is they see it they know the demographics have shifted they know this is probably their last time when they'll really be able to control a national election they see the handwriting on the wall they know even the South is changing and they know so they're trying to hold back any significant third reconstruction but I believe that it can't be held back and that we must in fact uh, push forward
1: The Electoral College isn't the real story. The real story is that 100 million people, because of voter suppression, because Election Tuesday isn't a holiday, because no candidate speaks to the issues that impact their lives, because of whatever reason, 100 million people didn't vote in 2016. The Electoral College is ultimately a mechanism by which a shrinking minority of Americans can exert control over a growing majority, but only if we let them. On this second season of Who Is, we've told you about power over the course of 16 episodes through the stories of people who have it. You've probably noticed some familiar plot points, and one of them is almost always a tough local race run by a couple hundred or a couple thousand votes. All politics is local, and the thing about power in a representative democracy is that you can get it. Voting is just the first step. And that wraps the second season of Who Is. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back for season three in early 2021. If you have any great ideas for episodes you'd like to hear, email me, sm at A sincere thank you to our guests, Reverend Dr. William Barber II, the president of Repairers of the Breach, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, and pastor of Greenleaf Christian Church in Goldsboro, North Carolina. Alexander Kaysar, the Matthew W. Sterling Jr. Professor of History and Social Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. His most recent book is Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? Sanford Levinson, the W. St. John Garwood Jr. Centennial Chair in Law at the University of Texas Law School. His most recent book is a graphic novel, Fault Lines in the Constitution, co-authored with Cynthia Levinson and illustrated by Ali Schwed. Mark Hugo Lopez, director of global migration and demography research at Pew Research Center, and Representative Amelia Sykes, a Democrat who represents Ohio's thirty-fourth district in the Ohio House of Representatives, where she serves as minority leader. Who is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Mara, writer and senior producer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Laura Tillman is our associate producer. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earle. Ron Flats is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Adekudar. And now this, Team Zaros is our chief content officer, and Athan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks, as always, to the team behind the original video series of Who Is. Check out their big new piece, Who Is Donald Trump? Want more great podcasts from Now This? Our new podcast, Now This Brief, has a new episode every weekday. Listen to all the most important stories in the brief Now This Way, five days a week. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or ask your favorite artificial intelligence for the Now This Brief. We're on Alexa and Google Assistant.